tiny thing we cannot see or taste or feel or hear has shut down nearly half our world and brought distress and fear. We've read about the plagues of old, how a virus gone astray has caused much sickness, death and grief with new reports each day. But many helpers brave this plague and serve those most in need and offer comfort, help and care through many a word and deed. We thank our true and gallant ones who risk their lives to bring relief and help to sickened folk touched by that tiny thing. Yet there are other tiny things to cheer each anxious heart. A smile, a wave, a caring note, though we must stay apart. A phone call, email, Facebook, Zoom can curb anxiety, while faith and hope and love abound to keep our spirits free. That is poet Ray Whitney, reading a tiny thing we cannot see. Over her 94 years, Whitney has written more than 500 hymns, songs full of praise and declarations of faith. Many of Whitney's hymn texts are perennial favorites, appearing in multiple Episcopal, Presbyterian, and Baptist hymnals. She wrote A Tiny Thing We Cannot See while sheltering in place in her retirement community in Nebraska. Like many artists and poets, she turns to her craft to make sense of the big and little things unfolding in our world. to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. The COVID-19 pandemic has prompted artists, composers, and poets like Ray Whitney to create new sacred music of all kinds. Hymns, prayers, chants, praise music, and so much more. Organic expressions are cropping up around the globe and across traditions, with some transcending cultural and language barriers thanks to social media. In Japan, Chibo Kenjo, a Zen Buddhist priest, collaborated with electronic musicians to create a piece of sacred music intended to ritually ward off the coronavirus. It's called Repel. In India, a video of Hindu women performing in Arthi, a form of sung worship, this went viral with its lively chorus of coronavirus go away sung in Hindi. And in Great Britain, the Methodist Church hopes people worshiping at home will join together to sing new COVID-related hymns like When We Face an Unknown Future by Carolyn Winfrey Gillette. When we face an unknown future that we can't imagine yet, when the closeness we have treasured 
turns from blessing into threat. This week, producer Kimberly Winston takes a closer look at how the pandemic has inspired people of faith over the year to find comfort in sounds that heal and offer solace. Before the pandemic, of course, people sang, played, or listened to sacred music in community, usually at a worship or prayer service. But because COVID pushed most religious services online, and because one of the best ways to spread the virus is through airborne particles, these new COVID compositions are typically sung by people alone at home or maybe with others via Zoom or Skype. According to Amanda Udis Kessler, a composer of Christian hymns who lives in Colorado Springs, as a means of singing together, it lacks something. There certainly are people who are solitary worshipers in various traditions, but for many religious traditions, the gathering is really important. It's where people build community. It's where they see their friends. It's where they touch and hold people they care about. It's, It's where their voices join together in a common space. It's where they are reminded together of what's important. You know, when I think of the word worship, it means roughly the honoring or lifting up of what is worthy. Udis Kessler is one of many hymn writers and composers who belong to the Hymn Society, a Washington, D.C. organization that promotes congregational singing in churches in the U.S. and Canada. Brian Hain directs its Center for Congregational Song, and I asked him how singing together in a religious setting can benefit the people who do it. Like any other form of art, congregational song can help people and does help people when it's doing its job name and express things that they need to express. Singing this beautiful song with this with these beautiful lyrics or this certain turn of phrase or, you know, like with a, a visual art piece, the, the way something looks can unexpectedly express something that we didn't know we needed to express. Mm. And I think that happens a lot with congregational song. And that's what these songs can do that are being written to address COVID now you know, we sit all day home alone and we just feel bad, you know? And, and, and after a year of this, I know this has happened to me. Sometimes I'm like, why do I just feel just crappy? And I'll have a conversation on the phone and I'm like, oh, I feel better. I needed to connect to someone. And so, you know, when we sing at church and we, and we say something and we sing this sad song that expresses this longing to be together, it can release this tension. It could say, hey, God, I'm hurting here. And just by acknowledging that, it can unexpectedly provide us with a a sense of of relief and it helps us become more true to ourselves when we've maybe put up some barriers to try to make it through. Hain and others have identified some common characteristics of Judeo-Christian sacred music that address the pandemic. In general, I would say lament is the kind of category. But then specifically under that larger umbrella are things like, you know, naming our grief, the kind of longing to be together again, the waiting, the painfulness of that, um, the painfulness of the loss, uh, just, you know, the amount of death and loss. I'm just naming those things which is very biblical. No one knows exactly how many COVID-inspired compositions there are, but the Hymn Society has compiled an entire web page of such hymns from Christian sources. It's hard to quantify 
I think right now there are a lot more kind of topic driven hymns being written about specific things. Whereas sometimes it may skew more towards generic hymns of praise and things like that. So I have definitely seen an uptick in people that want to address the specific situation, more lament songs, more songs that name the tragedy that is COVID and the hurt and the longing that people have to be together. Christian sacred music has a long history with tragedy and crisis. See Michael Hahn, a professor emeritus of church music at the Perkins School of Theology, compiled a list of 10 Christian hymns written during times of plague, war, and natural disasters. Some of them, like Now Thank We All Our God, was written amid the disease and famine of the Thirty Years' War and is a stalwart of Protestant worship today. In 1750, Charles Wesley, the great Methodist hymnist, wrote, Righteous Lord, thy people spare, after a series of earthquakes terrified the population of London. And in grief and fear to thee, O Lord, was written by William Bullock, a missionary in Nova Scotia in 1854, after cholera there carried off 2,000 people. And there are perhaps hundreds of hymns sung in black churches and beyond that emerged from the tragedy of slavery. It's anyone's guess if any COVID sacred music will have that kind of popularity. And for Amanda Udis Kessler, the hymn writer from Colorado, that's just fine. One of her COVID compositions is called Jesus the Essential Worker, and it has lyrics in both English and Spanish. It imagines Jesus as a custodial worker, a delivery man, and a maid, and is a meditation on the inequality the pandemic has revealed. Jesus, the essential worker, will probably have a short shelf life. And and again, I don't care. I just needed to write that piece. It references a poorly paid, socially devalued essential worker getting sick and dying alone. And even though that happens all the time in many contexts, the kinds of essential worker referenced in that lyric, I think for most people, will resonate most directly with the COVID-19 situation. I would love to be wrong. I would love for the term essential worker to stay alive. And in that case, the song will have a longer shelf life. And even in that song, which for me is quite specific, the first chorus begins, you can see it in the numbers, some lives matter more than others. That's universal. That's just social inequality forever. And um, making the Jesus of the song um, sometimes male and sometimes female, giving uh, uh, providing a, a verse in Spanish. Those are very particular things, and they're meant to push back against both a very kind of ethereal notion of Jesus, putting it into the life of a mythical person today. I'm, you know, trying to push boundaries a bit, but also remind us of what's important. One of those boundary-pushing hymns tackles the virtual worship services many congregations have resorted to. It's called, Church is More Than Just a Building. Church is more than just a building, more than wood or metal or brick. Church is how we love our neighbors. 
classic. It seemed to me that there was going to be a lot of transition and struggle and pain and grief and loss around the move to virtual worship. Certainly people in my own congregation were experiencing it. And so I was shocked to realize that almost no one else in the hymn writing world was doing anything quite like it. And I just wanted something out there that would be comforting and joyous and that would directly acknowledge and own what virtual worship is like and would reassure us that we are still gathered, that we're not alone, that we can be together without being physically in the same place. Solomon Hoffman's foray into COVID sacred music came out of his experience as a hospital chaplain in New York City while it was reeling from the virus. We live right near a hospital and we just were hearing sirens all the time. And it was really just a sense of like helplessness and um, and fear. And, you know, if I did go for a run or take a walk briefly outside when I walked by the hospital, I could really just feel the stress just kind of exuding out of the building and kind of just overhearing the hospital workers speak. That atmosphere of uncertainty and fear sent Hoffman, a musician, back to a composition he had shelved a few months before. It was a rendition of the third and fourth verses of Psalm 147, one of his favorites, in both Hebrew and English. When he was done, he sent the music to dozens of his friends from different faith and no-faith backgrounds and asked them to interpret it. The result is Harofe, Hebrew for the one who heals, a collage of singing voices, dancing bodies, and lilting instruments, all interpreting the phrase, May the light of the stars heal the wounds in our hearts in multilayered harmony. I really want to acknowledge that, you know, there's, we've experienced so much loss this year. Of course, the loss of life, but another loss that I'm grieving is the loss of in-person music making and in-person singing. May the light of the stars heal the wounds in our hearts. That's something that really nourishes my soul, and I've been missing this year. And I lead and participate in services on Zoom, but it's, you know, me singing with everybody else muted or somebody else singing and I'm muted. And the experience just isn't the same, and that's been a real challenge to feel the same spiritual connection when there isn't the connection of people's voices in real time. That was composer Solomon Hoffman discussing Harofe, a musical composition for voice and dance intended to acknowledge the losses of the COVID-19 pandemic. We also heard from hymn writers Amanda Udis Kessler and Ray Whitney, and from Brian Hain of the Center for Congregational Song. Coming up, Kimberly Winston continues her conversation with Solomon Hoffman. We meet Keely Garfield, the Buddhist choreographer who collaborates with Hoffman to use music and dance as a way to heal. Stay with us. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. 
We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. If you are just joining, this week, Kimberly Winston is taking us on a sonic journey, exploring sounds of faith created in response to the global pandemic, from hymns to chants. Now we turn to take a closer look at some of the creative people behind these sonic creations. Let's get back to the story. As I was reporting on the music people of faith make in response to COVID-19, a friend sent me a video on YouTube. The description said it was a piece of music based on Psalm 147, and the composer hoped it would comfort the bereaved. I was certainly feeling bereaved, so I clicked play. Instantly, I was carried away on the rising music that built from a single cello and a solo voice to include dozens of instruments, scores of singers, and dancers of all body types and sizes. All initially appear alone in the little box on the computer screen, filmed wherever they happen to be sheltering from the pandemic. And then the screen split into a bunch of little boxes, each one framing a single performer, but the grid brought them together so that they are singing in harmony, dancing in sync, and playing their instruments in a soaring tapestry of sound. The work is called Harofe, which is Hebrew for the one who heals, and watching it made me cry, in a good way. It was composed by Solomon Hoffman, who we met earlier in this show, and was choreographed by Keeley Garfield, 
Hoffman, you may remember, is a rabbinical student in the Jewish Reconstructionist tradition, and Garfield leads her own dance company and is a Zen Buddhist. The pair met last July when they both entered a hospital chaplaincy program in New York City. One day, Hoffman asked Garfield if she might collaborate with him on a piece of music he started before the pandemic, but now felt compelled to finish. Hoffman tells what happened next. I had written this this piece that had, you know, a sort of repeating phrase, and I wondered what it would be like to have movement that accompanied that phrase, and knowing that this was going to be, you know, a virtual, everybody recording their own part, that we wouldn't, you know, have dancers in the same space. So I had a thought about, you know, dancers that might be doing the same motions, people doing it in their own boxes or cutting between them. We talked about a way to create a phrase that might work for both more experienced dancers and, and people who dance for fun and really trying to open it up to a range of folks. I think in the same way that for the singing, I had parts for singers of different backgrounds and ranges to try to incorporate as many singers as possible. Keely, when you first heard the music, were there certain images it brought up in terms of movement or emotions related to what we've been through in the last year? Um, I think movement that would be kind of gesturally based and that would um, repeat in a kind of visibly easy to recognize kind of way would make it accessible and open it up to people to participate. Apart from the melody and the, and the lyric, I think the insight, the in and the out, so may the light of the stars, which is kind of out there, heal the wounds in our hearts. So the out in, that really was very strong pull for me and strongly resonated and also connected very much with the way that I I work and think about dance at all times. You know, that is a kind of relationship with what is happening in my body and how that is reflected in the body of the world. That tension between out and in. I hadn't thought of this before, but when you said that, it made me think, is that in any way sort of a metaphor for what we've been through. You know, I started getting of the pandemic. I had the classic experience of working from home and being at home and, and sort of, you know, each day feeling very kind of similar and things kind of shrinking, my world shrinking. And then the, the second half of the pandemic, at least last year, was the opposite. Solomon and I became, you know, frontline essential workers and were uh, very much out in the world and in the hospital and in rooms with patients and families. And it was a continuation of this kind of experience of being out and in and of kind of returning home and going back out into the world. And the world also didn't feel like home anymore. But there was certainly, for me, a sense throughout the year, and it continues now, of like, how far a field can I go and then where how, how do I bring it home and where is home and, and is the wound outside or is it inside and yes it, it's in the body of the world and in my body and in all our bodies and yet there's the light of the stars and there's music and there's dance and there's a kind of liturgical prayerful expression that mends it or knits it all together. Solomon for you that out in when you were composing, was that an image, a metaphor that had meaning for you in relation to the COVID crisis? For me, what's coming up is, as Keely talked about, you know, the experience of really being in it with patients and families that are going through this crisis with a loved one. There's a sense, I think, of showing up as a chaplain to somebody and really being in it with them. And that's very different than, you know, maybe looking at the newspaper and seeing the 
the number of deaths that day or feeling the larger societal loss. I think there's a sense of a different kind of experience when you're really in with one person who in their suffering versus out with the whole world and its suffering. But I think that maybe there's something about people each holding a little bit of suffering in themselves and by experiencing the video or by singing it, playing in it, perhaps joining others in their internal suffering and maybe finding some comfort in the presence of others and making music with others and making dance with others. And that's helping to actually heal the, the collective suffering that we're all, we're all in right now. Is there something about music, the making of music, whether you're singing, playing an instrument, or dancing to that music, is there something about that that can be healing when it is done in reference to a time like we've just had? I don't know who said it. It's a snippet of, I think, some poetry the heart's longing for itself comes to me. And that I too, you know, when I watched the film that Solomon made cried and with that sense of kind of like the heart longing for itself and then seeing the beating heart and the inhale and the exhale, which of course you have to do when you're singing and when you're dancing too. So the collective breath was very powerful. And there was another surprising thing for me in, in seeing the film. It really made me cry in a cathartic way and in a kind of hopeful way and in a very tender way um, because I was already, you know, involved in it. I knew the music. I made the dance. I had seen some of the footage of some of the, some of the dances, but seeing it come together was very powerful. Again, you know, we're, we're all used to the kind of virtual choirs and the way the artists have over the last year, more than a year continue to put their work out there in the world. But it just never gets old, actually, seeing people dancing in their kitchen or their living room <laughs> or bumping into the couch. Or with or... their baby strapped on their chest. Yeah, it never gets old. I would never have had that glimpse into, again, like talking about in, like a real, like, it's so intimate and so, you know, the heart longing for itself. Very beautiful. I was struck by the image in the video of everyone being in their own little box, right? Now, I know you had to film it that way because of the pandemic, but it really stands out to me as a metaphor for the whole year. Solomon, can you talk to me about creating that sense of isolation and community at the same time? Yeah, I think there is something really powerful about seeing each person in their own space and in their own environment. And I had helped to create some virtual choir pieces for one of the synagogues I work at with volunteer amateur choir. And a bunch of the choir members said, you know, it's really hard to sing by yourself and to not have the comfort of singing with others. And I actually feel really self-conscious and really question my ability to sing. But then when I hear it with the other voices, my faith is restored in, in my maybe my own ability to sing, the power of others singing together. I try to listen to each part as it comes in and just, you know, notice how it sounds, any points that need, might need to be addressed. But I really enjoy just listening to each line. I worked with a really wonderful audio engineer, Tim Pyrells, who took each line and then lines them up in sync, lines up their volume. And there's so much careful work that goes into, you know, it's not just putting it all in the kitchen sink and hoping it's okay. There's really a lot of really fine tuning. And I think that process of, oh, just one decibel up here, one decibel back here, 
to me, that's like, in terms of like finding the sacred, I think that's one of the, the ways that we do that. The more we edited and played with it and tried to find the most natural way for these people to fit together, that's really where we found the sacred place. Can you talk to me about how music and dance, how they can help us deal with the grief, deal with the sorrow, and deal with, you know, getting back into the real world? I thought of something I learned back when I first started training to be a chaplain, and my supervisor talked about listening for the music behind the words of what someone was speaking. Someone might say words, but there's really an emotional layer that as a chaplain, we try to notice and recognize and help people access. And we try to craft our interventions as chaplains to help people be in touch with that emotional level that's actually maybe below the words. And I think of music a lot like that too, that, that music is something that helps us to express that is beyond language. And I think the, the grief from this year is so you know overwhelming I know when I started listening to the first versions, I did feel that something unlocked and I w- was able to to cry a little bit or to notice, oh, I have this feeling that I have, I've tucked away and hearing this music and hearing the people that made it together, and hearing their voices and then seeing the dancers together and seeing the handoff between one dancer, just just little moments like that. I'm grateful and it's amazing to just see that it's been able to do that for people. That feeling of being alone together. I'm thinking of just move the words around a little bit, add a letter. You have all one, all one together. Alone together becomes all one together. In the beginning, how does a dancer and choreographer end up being a chaplain? And I, I don't see them as, as so vastly different when I think about things centered in the body. And let's face it, this pandemic is centered in the body. So I think that for me, there's always been this like pull between movement and sound. And at the other end of the spectrum, as a chaplain, maybe attending end of life, there's stillness and silence. But if we think of like those kind of poles, they need each other and they reflect each other and they enlarge each other. It's going to be a while before we really recognize or understand the ways that we've been changed by this experience. But it's almost like this kind of deep dive into stillness, into silence, into aloneness, maybe is the preparation that we've all, we all need in order to take a step back into movement and sound and the joy of being together and really, really relishing that. That was choreographer Keely Garfield and Solomon Hoffman, a rabbinical student, hospital chaplain candidate, and composer discussing Harofe, a musical composition for voice and dance intended to acknowledge the losses of the COVID-19 pandemic. You can find Harofe on Solomon Hoffman's YouTube channel. Coming up, producer Kimberly Winston continues the story, taking a closer look at how the pandemic has changed religious practices and some of our assumptions about what rituals look like. If you missed any portion of this program, you can stream it online at interfaithradio.org. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Stay with us.
You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. If you're just joining, this week, producer Kimberly Winston has been taking a closer look at how the pandemic has inspired new forms of music. Now she's turning to a different question. How has all of this change influenced not only our behavior, but our appreciation for the sounds of faith? Religious music is not the only kind of sound the coronavirus pandemic is changing. The team at the American Religious Sounds Project, Professors Amy DeRogatis of Michigan State University and Isaac Weiner of The Ohio State University, were collecting recordings from religious events and activities for several years when COVID forced them to pivot. They put out an open call for recordings of people doing religious activities under lockdown and to date have received between 150 and 200 recordings from all over the country and all different faith backgrounds. And some common themes are emerging across the religious traditions, themes that may indicate the way we do religion will be affected by the pandemic. One of the themes that's surfacing in many of the recordings that we've received is the sound of religious practices in domestic spaces. Of course, a lot of people have always practiced religion in domestic spaces, but now we're hearing particular sounds that we might associate with worship spaces happening in homes. And we're also hearing the attendant ambient sounds that go on in a domestic space. So, in many of the recordings, we'll hear pets vocalizing, we'll hear kids talking or crying, uh, we'll hear side conversations where people might be whispering or talking about what's happening while they're watching a live stream. But it is really the sounds of religion happening in domestic spaces that make it not just sound different, but also bring a unique humanizing to the recordings that we're, we're listening to, and they're really just beautiful. So a nice example of this one is one recording we received during Ramadan in 2020 with an imam giving a sermon on a live stream and having a small child, a, a baby really, just vocalizing and, and he's trying to continue with it, but the baby is babbling and going on. And there, then there's the question of whether there should be muting or not muting, and at what point. When does the service or the sermon that's being given get disrupted by this adorable child uh, that's being, you know, held during it? We have a compassionate Lord who incentivizes our... Uh, who incentivizes the forgiveness of our sins by calling us to fast. Uh, and by giving us this medicine of fasting, just imagine abstinence, right? Abstinence is what forms an entire pillar of this religion. This religion has, is built on five pillars, one of which is abstinence, abstaining, not indulging ourselves. And it's such a wonderful example of not just the flexibility of people as they try to continue traditions in a new context, but also a humanizing of the people who are officiating and participating because their daily lives, like the responsibility of caring for a child, are audible on the recording while they are practicing religion. There is another recording that is the epitome of the domestification of religion, when Judaism meets the classic children's book, Goodnight Moon. This is one of my favorite recordings that we've received in the collection. It was actually a viral tweet 
that a user contributed to our collection from an Orthodox Jewish man. The heading on the tweet, it said something like, are you missing the sounds of Torah reading during this time? And when you click on the recording, what you hear is he's chanting the children's book, Good Night Moon, but to the tune of the traditional cantillation that Jews use to read the Torah. And there was a telephone in a red balloon and a picture of the cow jumping over the moon. And there were three little bears sitting on chairs and two little kittens and a pair of mittens and a little toy house and a young mouse and a comb and a brush and a bowl full of mush and a quiet old lady who was whispering hush. Good night, room. Good night, moon. Good night, cow. Jumping over the moon. Good night, light in the red balloon. Good night, bears. Good night, chairs. Good night, kittens and good night, mittens. Good night, clocks and good night, socks. Good night, little house and good night. Good night, mask. Good night, comb. And good night, brush. Good night, nobody. Good night, mush. And good night, the old lady whispering hush. Good night, stars. Good night, air. Good night, noises everywhere. So it's the melody, the sound of reading Torah, put to the words of Good Night Moon. Why I love this recording so much is it just captures perfectly during this moment the blending together of traditional religious ritual with the space and sounds of domestic life. The project has also collected sounds from a Wiccan coven in Columbus, Ohio, both before and during the pandemic. It was a group of maybe 15 or 16 people, and they're gathered together in a circle in the leader's living room, chanting together. This practice is called the Cone of Power, which is a common Wiccan practice used to raise energy for magical purposes through chanting. So the participants are all standing in a circle, linking hands, forming the base of an invisible cone, to the top of which energy is believed to flow. And the energy emerges from this really powerful overlapping and weaving of their voices. They're kind of weaving together these melodies and words to create this immense power generating from their circle. So when the COVID pandemic first started, our multimedia content producer, Lauren Pond, went back to this community and she asked them, what are you doing now? How are you recreating this ritual? And they gave her permission to join them and to record their effort as they tried to recreate this powerful ritual over Zoom. And as any of us know who've spent time on Zoom over the last year, communal singing, communal chanting, the kind of ways that this ritual relies on the interweaving of voices, that's very difficult to replicate. So just as a practice, um, seasons change, but the magic still remains. 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 Seasons change, but the magic still rem
Yeah, it's not going to work. Yeah, we should just mute. Why don't we watch you guys? Yeah, we should mute. Seriously, I do want you to have the experience doing this there. I get this right. Many religious communities have had to figure out on the fly how to be creative and transformative in the moment. So in this case, the community decides they're all going to mute themselves except for the leader, which is a pretty powerful transformation of the ritual. Dero Goddess and Weiner also have a number of recordings of religion being practiced out of doors, where it is considered safer to meet, including this one of some Buddhists in Brooklyn chanting over the banging of pots and pans meant to thank first responders. What's really interesting about these examples, for those of us who think about sound specifically, is that because sound travels, sound is able to travel across and connect communities across space, even when they have to be physically separated for reasons of public health. Sound connects, and absolutely it also expands. One of the ways it does that is by spilling outside of traditional spaces, like churches or synagogues or mosques. And during this time, when so much practice has shifted inward, domestically, into the home, as we've discussed, sound has also allowed for really creative ways of spilling outward, into the public square, into the public sphere. Easter and the Jewish High Holy Days have also moved out of doors, and so have their joyful sounds. Right after the shutdown, we were heading into the Christian Lenten season, and then eventually, of course, Easter. And I think it just really compounded for so many people who practice Christianity what a huge loss that was. Easter is the most important holiday within the liturgical calendar, and it's the one time many people go to physical churches. And to not have that happen, to miss not just the religious doctrine of the holiday, but also the practice of being together, many churches and people got creative and started to think about ways in which they could come together and experience that community. One of the clips that we have comes from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and it's a group of people who, missing the community and the sounds of Easter service, came together on their porches and banged their pots and pans together while church bells rang in the background. It's a really wonderful example of being in community, but being in your own home at the same time, experiencing the joyful noises that you expect to hear on Easter Sunday morning. The other clip that we have, which is another kind of innovation, comes from Missouri. And it is a group of people who are attending a parking lot Easter service where they are all in their cars. And in order to have those joyful responses that you often hear on Easter Sunday, the hallelujahs and the amens, instead of yelling them out, they are sitting in their cars and honking their horns. Help us to realize that we can always run to the risen Savior. We pray for our service today. We pray for everything that we're going to do, that it would glorify you and that we can bond together through the Spirit and that your love can be poured out into our hearts as we leave this place. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 
So these are both really nice, innovative responses to what is an incredibly difficult moment of feeling isolated and not being able to go into those spaces and hear the sounds that Christians associate with the most important holiday of the liturgical year. We also saw or heard some of this during the Jewish high holidays in fall 2020, when many Jewish communities could not gather together in the space of the synagogue for the Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur services. So instead, many Jewish communities took the sounding of the shofar, the ram's horn, which is this incredibly powerful moment in the service that evokes the broader themes of the day related to repentance, atonement, and forgiveness. And many people have this very strong emotional connection to the sound of the shofar. So what many Jewish communities did is they took it outside of the synagogue. They separated the sounding of the shofar from the formal liturgy of the service and moved it outward to public parks, to street corners. And they invited people to gather together at a safe social distance to hear the blowing of the shofar that way instead. We're happy to be here together uh, with you today so we can safely mark Rosh Hashanah. And we ask everyone to please wear a mask and practice social distancing and disperse as soon as we finish. Over the centuries, rabbis have offered many reasons why we blow shofar on this day. One explanation is that the sound of the shofar should wake us up and make us reflect on who we are, what we are doing, and how we can do better. Other rabbis explain that the sound of the shofar resembles our crying and sobbing to signify our remorse and to sensitize us to the suffering of others. This past year has been difficult for many of us, so perhaps this year, shofar can also help us rouse God to consider our anguish and pain, as well as that of our neighbors and of all humanity. Baruch Atadonai, Eloheinu Melech Olam, Shechianu, Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who has sanctified us with commandments and commanded us to hear the sound of shofar. Weiner and De Rogatis say the sounds they have collected offer clues to what practicing religion might look like when all our pandemic precautions are lifted and we can go back to normal. One of the things that we've noticed from the types of sounds that we've collected or the types of submissions that have come in is that there's a definite interest in recreating some continuity and traditions and in trying to keep hold of the things that people are used to doing and hearing when they're meeting in religious community. Uh, But that's balanced with a need to be creative. So sure, there are innovations and flexibility that have come out of this really difficult time that I think are going to stay with us. I think that there is a lot of experimentation that we're hearing in our recordings, and some of it will definitely be carried through to the future. One of the things we've noticed in many of the recordings we've received is that the person who's doing the recording is geographically very far from the thing they're recording. So they might be in California, attending a service in Maryland, or here in Ohio, recording a service that's actually happening in Texas. Many people are realizing that they are no longer tied geographically to a particular institution or community. 
I think people are taking advantage of this time to visit services at synagogues or mosques or churches that they normally would not be able to attend themselves. And now that so many institutions are making their services accessible via Zoom or live streaming, I think that's definitely going to continue. And De Rogatis thinks that that kind of religious tourism may lead to another significant change, greater inclusion for people who sometimes feel marginalized in traditional worship spaces. So the inclusion question is very profound. And uh, one of the submissions we have is from a parent who is in the Christian tradition, who uh, recorded her family celebrating communion online in their home with the whole family. And the sounds of that are the domestic sounds that you would expect. But the sound also includes her autistic son, who is vocalizing very loudly and is fully participating in the communion ritual. And what she wrote to us about the recording was that it was the first time that she felt her family could be fully themselves during this very particular and important Christian ritual. There was no hushing or quieting him or feeling like you're being disruptive or that you don't belong in your own religious community. And so I hope that religious leaders and community members will listen up and will pay attention to how important those types of opportunities are and that they will find new ways to be more inclusive and really take seriously who the community members are and what it means to feel authentically yourself in a religious community. That was Amy DeRogatis and Isaac Weiner, co-directors of the American Religious Sounds Project, a joint venture between The Ohio State University, where Weiner is an associate professor of comparative studies, and Michigan State University, where DeRogatis is a professor of religious studies. I am Kimberly Winston, reporting from Northern California. That's all for this week's show. If you missed any portion, head over to interfaithradio.org for this week's episode show notes, where you will find links to the musical selections featured and details on how you can submit your recordings to the American Religious Sounds Project. This week's episode was produced by Kimberly Winston and Kevin McCarthy. A special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, and MC Yogi for our theme music. Wherever you are, I hope you are well, and I hope you stay connected, and I hope to see you next week. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Khan.